Struggling for purpose for January 10th, 2021. My name is John Wilkerson, and joining me today on the podcast is Mark Charles, former presidential candidate. Mark, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, John. It's great to be with you. Um, I'd like to introduce myself first to your listeners and then do a land acknowledgement, if I may. So, Yat E, Mark Charles Yinishia, Sin Bekedna Nishla, the Tohiklini Bashish Chin, Sin Bekedna Dashiche, the Tohichini Dashinala. In our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. We're matrilineal, and our identities come from our mother's mother. So my mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, and that's why I say Tsinbeke Dene'e. Loosely translated, that means I'm from the Wooden Shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother, is Tohiglini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also Tsinbeke Dene'e. Then my fourth clan, my father's father, is Tohichitni, and that's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I also want to acknowledge that I moved to uh, Washington, D.C. from the Navajo Nation um, about five and a half years ago with my family. And so I live now on Piscataway lands. And I want to honor and thank the Piscataway for being the indigenous hosts, the host people of the land where I live currently with my family. I've had the chance to meet some of the Piscataway. I've been welcomed to these lands by the Piscataway. And I'm humbled to be living here. And I want to honor them as the indigenous peoples of these lands. Thanks for that introduction, Mark. And I just want to acknowledge the the Mohawk who have been here in the Saratoga Springs area and uh, thank them for their stewardship of the lands here as well. I will actually let's start out with that with land acknowledgments. I've been following you for quite a while. You do this on every podcast interview I've heard you on. You you do a land acknowledgment uh, as well as. Um, on all of your videos that you post online, you do a land acknowledgement. I have seen some people start doing land acknowledgements. What is your opinion on how often they should be done? Should people be doing them? Just share that with me, please. I, I think it's very important. You know, one of the things as as part of my culture, my Navajo culture, we introduce ourselves every time we speak publicly whether we're with family or whether we're on the reservation or whether we're anywhere else, we always introduce ourselves because our clans are so important. Who our family is, who we're descendant from, who our relatives are is so important to who we are. Um, we always introduce ourselves by our clans every time we do something publicly. And I take the same rule whenever uh, for doing land acknowledgements. Whenever I speak publicly, I always try to acknowledge the people whose land I'm on. Over the past year, since we've been in the pandemic, I've mostly been speaking from Washington, D.C. over Zoom or some other uh, social media or some other um, virtual media. And so I, I do the Piscataway a lot. But I also, like if I'm speaking to a group, I will acknowledge the people whose land I'm speaking to as well, just to make sure that that doesn't go get missed. But yeah, I think it's important that we do it Anytime that we are speaking publicly or doing something that will be seen or heard in a public forum. And the reason for that is, is because, you know, one of the responses I get a lot from people is they will tell me after they hear the history I talk about or the issues I speak about, and they'll say, well, I don't know any natives and therefore I'm not aware of these issues. And I remind them, yeah, that was by design. The country was framed. It was created, it was formed so that 
non-natives wouldn't have to think about who was ethnically cleansed from the lands where they live. And so because the hiddenness of the native community was so intentional by design of our founders, I think we have to be just as intentional to make sure that we expose and acknowledge the people whose land we're on, no matter where we are, even if it seems redundant, even if it seems like we've done this before, but because it's been hidden for so long, I think it's important that we we make sure we acknowledge it in a respectful way as frequently as we possibly can. I think doing the land acknowledgement, it ties back to a, a common theme that I have heard nearly every time you speak, you mention this, and that's a common memory. Could you share with the, the audience, what are you referencing when you when you speak of a common memory and how does that help society as a whole, especially how will that help an, the American society? Yeah, common memory is a quote that I, I heard for the first time when I was working with the Christian Reformed Church in North America and some of the churches in Canada to kind of translate for the American context, not lingu- linguistically translate, but kind of culturally translate and historically translate um, what's called the blanket exercise, which is a physical exercise that groups can do to go through to learn the history of the doctrine of discovery. And one of the quotes that was in that program was a quote used by George Erasmus, who's a native elder from the Diné people in Canada. He um, actually was a part of the truth and reconciliation process in Canada. And when he was writing a letter about that commission, he used a quote and he said, where common memory is lacking, where people do not share in the same past, there can be no real community. If you want to build community, he said, you have to start by creating common memory. I heard that quote, and as I've used it, and as I've even thought about it and incorporated into my speaking and my writing and the the book I wrote, I I love that quote, because I think it gets to the heart of our nation's problem with race, which is we don't have a common memory. We have this white majority that remembers a mythological history of discovery and expansion, opportunity and exceptionalism. We have marginalized communities, Native communities, African-American communities, other communities of color, who have been who have the experience, the lived experience of stolen lands and broken treaties, of slavery and Jim Crow's laws, of mass incarceration and internment camps, of Indian boarding schools and Indian massacres, of families being ripped apart at our borders. And there's really no common memory. And if we're honest about our history, there's no point in the United States history where we can look back and say, oh, we had healthy relationships across racial lines during this period. It doesn't exist. And so this creation of a common memory that holds this promise of healthier relationships, I think is an incredible goal to strive for. And so I've incorporated that quote into as many of my writings, my public speeches, my presentations as I possibly can, because I find it gives Americans, citizens of the United States, from both sides of the aisle, from both segments of our history, from no matter what race they, they grew up in or what race they're a part of, it gives them this common vision of a way that we can honestly build a healthier community without ignoring what the past and what the history is. Yeah, I, I think that's such a great idea. And I think a lot of Christians, if they if they look at the Bible, and they look at how people always referred back to the patriarchs, and how the Jewish people were kind of—they were doing that. They were building this common memory of, remember, this is where we came from. I think that will help Christians, especially, 
to to understand that idea. I've I've always wondered as a Christian, how do you maintain there must be some kind of tension in you've seen what people have done in the name of Christ to Native Americans, and yet you believe in the same God that that they claim to believe. So how do you reconcile that tension and, and that and that history that we see uh, from the past? The way I reconcile it is through the book I wrote. I've co-authored a book called uh, Unsettling Truth, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. A good friend of mine, Sing Chan Ra, who also wrote uh, Prophetic Lament and The Next Evangelicalism, he and I co-authored this book together. And this book really is, a lot of it is about my journey and my narrative of how Christianity which was rooted out of the Jewish tradition, but really in the person of Jesus, how it got, how it made this journey from the teachings of Jesus, who said things like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, how it got to a doctrine of discovery that basically told the, was the church telling the nations of Europe, you can kill people who don't look, worship, act, or culturally behave like you do. And as I've traced that journey throughout the past 15 years of my life. And I've, I've looked at the history, I've studied the scriptures, I've, I've had numerous conversations, read countless books, and, and tried to understand how did we get from these things to Jesus. You know, my, my grandparents were boarding school survivors. The purpose of the boarding schools was to kill the Indian to save the man. Literally, they were put into these military-style boarding schools where they were punished for speaking their language, punished for practicing their culture, the stories of abuse I've heard from these schools, emotional, physical, mental, sexual, that happened in these boarding schools is literally gut-wrenching. It just makes your stomach turn. And these schools didn't close until the 1970s and 80s. In fact, I went to a school, Rehoboth Christian School, which operated as a boarding school in the Gallup, New Mexico area for nearly 70 to 80 years. When I was attending there, it was transitioning from a boarding school to a day school. So I was there as a day school student. I had other peers who were there as boarding school students. And oftentimes our experiences are vastly different. And so, you know, as I've been wrestling with this, one of the huge parts of the journey for me was a group I got involved with. Uh, this is almost maybe 20 years ago now, when I was the pastor of a church in Denver called the Christian Indian Center. And we were on a journey. My first meeting with the council there was they, they said, you know, our last pastor introduced us to the idea of contextualizing worship, culturally contextualizing worship for native culture. And they said, we want you to join, lead us in that journey. I really didn't know what they were talking about, but they introduced me to some relationships. I got involved with this group called the World Christian Gathering on Indigenous Peoples. For five or six years, I met regularly with Indigenous Christians from all over the world who were in the process of actively decolonizing their faith. Most indigenous Christians, not only here in the US, but all around the world, were colonized by the gospel. Western Europeans came in and they brought with them the message of the Bible, but they also brought in a very white supremacist and culturally central message. And so most indigenous people have the experience of being colonized by the gospel. And so, Hearing those stories, listening to, to their experiences, and 
seeing some of the different paradigms and perspectives they had on even reading the scriptures, it really opened my eyes up to what, what, how I need to think about and even go through our scriptures differently. And so when I sit down to the Bible and I read it, not through a Western European lens, but through a native indigenous cultural lens, when I hear it spoken by people of color and I, I listen to it through the, through the filters of people who have different experiences than the colonizers here in the United States, I see different takes and understandings on the scriptures. And so, yeah, that, that journey, the first, the first four chapters of our book, and even most specifically chapters three and four, are really about how the church got from the teachings of Jesus to this dehumanizing doctrine of discovery. And it really was when the church decided it wanted to save its life rather than lose it. It wanted to establish worldly, worldly empire instead of following the teachings of Jesus. And, and once it made that decision, that is where it, it began to skew. And again, initially the skew was small and it seemed positive, but after 2000 years, the difference is a chasm and it's, it's nowhere close to looking like what Jesus had ever envisioned. And so, yeah, so there's this fascinating journey. And, and one of the stories that we tell in the book, and one of the stories that actually really hits home for me is um, a friend of mine in the CRC church. He's actually from one of the nations in Africa, and he works within the missions department for the Christian Farm Church of North America. And he was telling me a story about how the gospel was first brought to their people, to their tribe. And it was actually his grandfather, his great-grandfather, who was one of the first people who met some of the missionaries and he had been educated. He knew some of the English language. And so he was able to communicate better. And they were in the, in the process of translating the scriptures into their language. And they were pretty adamant. The missionaries were pretty adamant that they had to use the, the English word for God in their translation. And my friend's ancestor said to the missionary, he said, you know, we've known creator for hundreds, thousands of years. We didn't know we had a son. If you make us use your word for God in this translated book, this book will merely be about the white man's God. If you let us use our word for creator, who we already know and have relationship with, this book will be an extension of our own relationship with creator, incorporating now the teachings of Jesus. And that I think is is so crucial to understanding this is, you know, just like Christianity came out of the Jewish religion, came out of Judaism, but there are people all around the world who know in some ways, they may not have a full rev- revelation, but they know creator. Right. And then when when we can when we can go to these cultures, to these people and, and share from our perspective, hey, let us tell you about this man named Jesus who said he was creator's son and talk about his teachings and how does that, you know, fit with what you understand creator to be. That's an incredibly eye-opening way. And, and it, it allows for a real growth of the process um, rather than the colonizing of a group of people to force them into a different cultural worldview or frame set to think about their faith. 
That's the approach Paul took when he was on Mars Hill, right? And he was saying, look, you have this statue here to the unknown God. Let me tell you about the unknown God and who this is. It's just amazing how far the Western church, especially the American church, has just moved away from that idea of, like you said, contextualizing the gospel. What we see in Scripture is is in the context of the Israel in captivity under Rome, and you can take the, take that out and say, okay, now let's look at your situation. What does a, how does a sermon on the amount on the mount apply to your culture? What do you have in your culture that will associate with an agrarian society? And maybe you have an agrarian society and you understand the ideas of sowing seed and harvest and things like that, but maybe you don't. Maybe you have a different kind of society, and so how can we contextualize that with you? I think that is just yeah. so important and an important point. If you look at Jesus' teaching, right, His he taught with parables. Parables is all about contextualizing. Right. It's all about he's taking, he's trying to relate an experience he had to the Jewish people. There's this great book I love. It's called Bruchko. It's about Bruce Olson, who was a, a missionary from the U.S. down in South America. This is like in the 30s or 40s, maybe the 50s. I forget when exactly it was. And he met a tribe down there and took almost a decade to get relationally connected into the tribe and had a good friend who converted to Christianity and they were working on translating the scriptures into their language. It was the Matalone language. It was the Matalone people who they were, he was working with down there. It was one of the first non-native people to ever interact with this, with this group of people. And as they were translating the Bible, they came across um, the parable of the, um, the wise and foolish builders, where um, you know, the parable says that the, the, the wise man built his house on the rock, and the foolish man built his house on the sand. The Matalone tribe said, Brusco, this parable makes no sense because they lived in the Amazon jungle and they had monsoons and rains and floods. And so your house, if you wanted to be sturdy, had to be built in the mud where your sticks, your stilts could go deep down into the mud to give you a sturdy foundation for when the floods came. And so they said, this parable makes no sense. Only an idiot would build their house on the rock and get washed away. <laughs> right. And so, so this forced Bruchko to think about that, Bruce Olson to think about that. And so fortunately, he had the humility to say, yeah, you're right. And so in the Matalone Bible, their parable of the wise and foolish builder says the foolish builder built his house upon the rock mm. and the wise builder built his house in the mud. That's the whole purpose of contextualization. It's, 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 this is how Jesus taught. It's not that this parable is the truth. This parable represents the truth. And he was using that parable in a Jewish context back in, in you know, 2000 years ago to convey these ideas. So why can't we do the same thing? In fact, one of the most profound teachings I've ever had is when I sat down and wrestled with the parable of the prodigal son translating it, not linguistically, but culturally into the Navajo culture and thinking, how would Jesus teach that parable if he were teaching to a Navajo audience? And when I did that process, it was eye-opening and actually transformed my faith. 
and helped me to see things about the gospel and about creator and about Jesus I had never seen before. I can certainly understand why why it would. You ran a campaign, uh, twenty nineteen, a a virtual campaign, basically for for most of the year. Did you start your presidential campaign in twenty eighteen or? We we I announced um, the end of May in two thousand nineteen. Okay, and so we we announced it. So we had about um, nine months until the pandemic hit. Where and I I ran as an independent. Yeah. And uh, I ran as an independent primarily because I wanted, I felt very adamant that I wanted to campaign first and foremost, not to the white landowning men in Iowa and New Hampshire, which is where most campaigns start because of how the primary system works. I wanted to campaign first and foremost to Native and Indigenous peoples. And so I ran as an independent and I spent almost all of 2019 traveling the country, speaking in small native communities, on reservations, in urban centers, all around the country, bringing my message first and foremost to the native peoples, the indigenous peoples of Turtle Island. And then just as we were beginning to think about and strategize for how we're going to now travel and, and bring the message elsewhere after we spent 2019 focusing on native peoples, that's when the pandemic hit. And then we were one of the first campaigns to shut down our physical travel, physical campaigning. And we are the only, we are one of the few campaigns that stayed virtual the entire rest of the campaign. Even Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, they didn't shut their campaigns down till almost the end of March. We shut ours down the first week of, of March. They continued to travel and to, to do things. They were virtual, but they did have some events later on. We were 100% virtual throughout the entire campaign. Um, the theme of our campaign was we wanted, we wanted to build a nation where we the people truly meant all the people. And I felt like if we wanted the integrity of advocating for such a thing, we had to run our campaign in a way that actually during a global pandemic for which there was no vaccine, we should run our campaign in a way that actually protected the health and the well-being of all the people. I was an elector, full disclosure, for anyone who's listening, I was an elector here in, here in New York. And I am deeply grateful for that. And I remember meeting one time, and and you just said pl- plain out, "Look, I know we are we are a long shot." If I recall, you were also, I, I would say, probably the most successful independent campaign, where, because weren't you yeah. raised you raised more money than than yeah. all the other independent so campaigns, have, right? So yeah, when you look at the campaigns, obviously you have your Democrat and Republican campaigns, which they have these huge mechanisms that they fall into. And even in the primaries, they raise tens of millions of dollars. And then you have your third party candidates. The two primary ones are the Libertarians and the the Green Party. And they're, they're still, they have fairly good systems, national networks that they can fundraise from and they can travel through and they can promote themselves through. And then you have independents. And I was one of the, independence. And uh, there's, you know, there's hundreds literally of people who register as an independent um, and declare a run for, for, for president. And then during, it was in July of 2020, that Kanye West and Brock Pierce on the same day, I was 4th of July weekend, they both announced an independent campaign for president. This was, this was just a few months before the actual election. Now, both of them are independently wealthy. And they both spent millions of their own dollars, their own money on their campaigns. And they got on the ballot in several states and they had more exposure and more um, 
press than we did, but they raised less money than we did. They had more money because they're wealthy, but we actually raised about $150,000 throughout the course of our campaign, which I believe was the highest of any independent candidate fundraising. And we were beaten in the third party races only by the, uh, the, the, the Libertarians and the Green Party. And so we started with nothing and had raised $150,000 throughout the, the course of the campaign. And what was really encouraging for me is when we announced our campaign in May of 2019, we made the, I made the, the intentional decision to have a nine-minute announcement video. And everyone else said, well, we need to have a shorter video. This is about sound bites. And I said, no, if, I, if we want to actually address the foundational problems of our nation, we have to have a longer conversation. And so we announced, we used a nine-minute announcement video, and we, we put it up on our website, on our YouTube channel. And up until the day before the election, we would get people who would find our announcement video somewhere, somehow, and they would email our campaign and say, your vision is amazing. This is one of the most profound campaigns I've ever seen. You actually give me hope in this political... We had, even in the last few weeks before, I remember there's one time about two weeks before the election, we had that experience where someone found our announcement video and they donated the, the maximum amount that they could donate, even though the election was almost over, the campaign was almost over. And, you know, they knew that we weren't going to getting the policy we needed to win, but they're like, your campaign gives us so much hope. We want to make sure that this gets invested in. And so that's what really gave me so much hope throughout the campaign is yeah, we didn't get the national press we wanted. We didn't get into the national dialogue we wanted, but we definitely have the beginnings of a movement here. And there were people literally up until the, the, the days before the, the election who were finding our campaign and saying, you have the most hopeful spot on message of any candidate out there. If there was an award for the best announcement video, I'm beyond a shadow of a doubt, I'm confident our campaign would win that award. The video that, that we put out, and Ian Strickland, who made our video, was one of our volunteers and worked as a videographer for our campaign. He did a fantastic job of putting that video together. And yeah, I was very, very proud of, of what we were able to do throughout the 18 months of our campaign. Let's do a little role playing. President-elect Biden came out yesterday and made a statement um, after what happened in, or it, actually it was still going on, the uh, the attempt to uh, take over the Capitol. You know, you could call it sedition. You could call it a coup. There are a lot of words that, that are attack. being a attached to it. It was on our Capitol building. Yeah. So, so terrorism is what it was. And, and Biden comes out and makes a statement and he invokes, he invokes Lincoln. A lot of people like to quote Lincoln. You have talked at length about why it's problematic to quote Lincoln, uh, just be because of his history. Now, and, and I think this has a lot to do with this, with this, with this common common memory thing. Because for most people, their common memory, the common memory of Lincoln, is one of, oh, he went into the Civil War. He didn't really want to do it. He freed the slaves. That's what's written in the books, and that's what most people's memory of Lincoln is. So. First, I would ask you, what would your statement have been if, if you had you been president elect, president elect Mark Charles, had you come out and, and had to make a statement about what was going on? And then second of all, 
who would you have quoted instead of Lincoln in, in, in that in that instance? Well, actually, I did make a statement regarding this um, event, uh, the terrorist attack yesterday. I, I did a live stream on my YouTube channel, on my Facebook page, where I addressed this issue. And I was really disappointed. Joe Biden came out first and made a statement. And in his statement, he appealed to what is really one of the most unifying themes in American politics, which is the myth of American exceptionalism. And I talked about this frequently throughout my campaign, which is, our nation, you know, the challenge with our nation is our constitution, our founding documents are rooted in racism, sexism, and white supremacy. Just blatant white, racist and sexist and white supremacist statements throughout our founding documents. Our Declaration of Independence refers to natives as merciless Indian savages. Our constitution never mentions women, specifically excludes natives, counts Africans as three-fifths of a person. We, we've never abolished slavery. We've just redefined and codified it with the 13th Amendment under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system. We use the doctrine of discovery as recently as 2005 to state that natives don't have um, agency over their own lands because we're savages. We are only occupants of the land. And so we have all of these things literally built into our foundations. In our book, one of the ways I have two chapters, there's four chapters really important to these themes. The first one, I have two chapters on trauma and I have two chapters on Abraham Lincoln. Now the challenge with Abraham Lincoln, and we point this out in my lectures as well as in the book, that the challenge America has is we've never lost a war that matters. And history is written by the victors. And so because the U.S. has never lost a war, it's never been occupied, it's never had to be disarmed or have a regime change, we've written our history for literally 500 years, 250 since we were established as a country. That's dangerous, right? I, I, I challenge people to imagine, let's imagine Nazi Germany wins World War II. How would they record Adolf Hitler? Right. Well, he'd be their greatest leader ever, right? He brought them from poverty and, and marginalization to the center of, of power in the world. How would they teach the Holocaust? Well, we have Holocaust deniers today. If they won, and this is if they when they lost the war, imagine if they won. Yeah. What Holocaust? There was no Holocaust. That's the same problem we have with Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln is one of the most white supremacist presidents in American history and one of the most genocidal. One of his most brazen quotes in the Lincoln-Douglas debate, he said, I have no intention of making voters our jurors of Negroes or allowing them to hold office or to intermarry. There is a physical difference, he said, between the white and black races, which will, will forever forbid the two from living in terms of social and political equality. But as long as they have to remain together, there must be the distinction between superior and, and inferior. And I, as much as any other man, said Abraham Lincoln, believe that the superior position belongs to the white race. In 1862, he signed the Pacific Railway Act, which gave the resources and the land to complete the Transcontinental Railway. He also uh, 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 signed the uh, Homestead Act, which allocated 160 acres of land to any U.S. citizen who went west and homesteaded. Within two years of signing those bills, he had literally ethnically cleansed the Native nations from the states of Minnesota, Colorado, Wyoming, and the territory of New Mexico, including the Long Walk, which was my people in the territory of New Mexico, as he was clearing the routes for the Transcontinental Railway. Literally, make, I, I can only imagine 
how many native lives were saved because he was assassinated in 1865. While my people were still imprisoned at Bosquedondo, which was a death camp where nearly a quarter of our people, 10,000 were imprisoned there, a quarter of them died before we were able to negotiate our own release. And so there's this myth because we've written our own history, we've created a myth out of people like Abraham Lincoln. And so when I heard yesterday, Joe Biden quote Abraham Lincoln as a unifying voice within our country, and yet he is one of the most white supremacist and genocidal nation uh, people in our nation's history. And then I hear him tell our people that Americans can do anything they put their mind to, that we are exceptional. The myth of American exceptionalism is, it, it's a myth and it's rooted in the lie of white supremacy. And so his response to what happened yesterday was this is not who we are and we are exceptional. The United States is still exceptional. Minutes later, Donald Trump goes on to his Twitter space and he asks his supporters to leave peacefully. He reaffirms that the election was stolen. He reaffirms how their anger that they feel. And he calls them very special people. And he, he completely reaffirms their own sense of victimness. And so Donald Trump goes online and literally he says, my supporters, my rioting supporters, domestic terrorist supporters and I are victims and we are very special people. That was his message. So I went online and I said that this is absolutely who we are. This is what our nation does. We are a nation founded on a dehumanizing doctrine of discovery. We are a nation enriched by the stealing of lands and the enslavement of an entire continent of people. We are a nation that has never dealt with its past. We are a nation that to this day has injustices, systemic injustices moving forward. What you saw on the news at the US Capitol is absolutely who the United States of America is. But if we are willing to acknowledge that and deal with it, then it's not who we have to remain to be. We can actually make a decision to acknowledge the past, acknowledge who we are, and say we want to become something different. And so I tied it into this theme of common memory. I tied it into this theme, and that's the problem is the coping mechanism of both of these president, of our president and our president-elect was denial. Joe Biden coped with this crisis by telling our nation this is not who we are and we are still exceptional. And Donald Trump coped with it by continuing his state of denial. And so this is where we need a leader who can say, yeah, this is who we are. This is what we've done. This is what we've always done. But we don't have to stay there. I actually made the comparison, you know, if, if you know anyone who's gone through AA, Alcoholics Anonymous or any other of these addiction programs, one of the first things you have to do to get over an addiction is admit you have a problem. Right. So yesterday, both of our leaders, our president and our president-elect said, we don't have a problem. We're just here for the free cookies. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, we have to admit we have a problem. And that's the only way we're going to be able to get better and move forward in a healthy way. And so I reiterated my call to create this common memory so that we can actually have a healthier community moving forward. Yes, this is who we are now. 
And yes, this is who we've been for the past 250 years. It's not who we have to be tomorrow, but we have to make the decision to change that. And neither Joe Biden nor President Trump are willing to lead us to make those changes so that we can actually can become something different. Going forward, do you plan to run for president again? And I mean, like you had said, your focus really had been on natives. And it, it seemed to for me, from the outside looking in, it seemed to me not being able to go to native lands and actually physically be there and talk to them. It, it definitely hindered your your campaign. So is that something you're you're looking to do in the future? Or are you kind of uh did this campaign leave a bad taste in your mouth and and and, yeah. and you're going to try and approach it a different way? <laughs> well, I mean, this campaign was a massive learning experience for me. Um, and uh, I set out with some very distinct goals. Actually, there's a TEDx talk I gave about two years ago, I believe. It's called We the People, the Three Most Misunderstood Words in U.S. History. And uh, it's still online. You're, and you're welcome to watch it. And it lays out how systemic our white supremacy, racism, and sexism are. And it, it issues a call to build a nation where we the people means all the people, to address our foundations, and, and to create what, I, what I'm calling a truth and conciliation commission, a national dialogue on race, gender, and class that's on par with the TRCs that happened in South Africa, Rwanda, and Canada. I don't call ours a TRC, truth and reconciliation, because that implies there was a previous harmony, which isn't accurate. I would call ours truth and reconciliation. So these were my goals. I want to remove the racism, the sexism, and the white supremacy from our foundations. I wanted to build a national initiated national dialogue on race, gender, and class. I wanted to build a nation where we the people truly means all the people. I wanted to create this common memory. And none of those goals were accomplished. We had a great start, but we did not accomplish our goals. And so I'm absolutely strategizing and thinking now, what do we need to do to move this forward? My vice presidential candidate and I, uh, Adrian Wallace, are actually in the process of looking at starting a PAC. Um, hopefully within the next few uh, days or weeks so that we can invest in candidates, independent, but even just younger candidates, even from the two parties who bring in new ideas and new blood into our, our political leadership system. Absolutely, the option of running for president again in 2024 is on the table. I, I still deeply believe that this is one of the best ways to institute the changes that I'm calling for, the changes that our nation needs. You know, if I, and people have suggested, why, why don't you run for Congress or run for Senate? Well, at first I'd have to move hmm. because I live in the district, which doesn't have congressional representation <laughs> right. at a national level. So I'd have to move for that. And even where I came from, the Navajo Nation, right? It, it's, we, we don't have, I mean, we're part of a state, so we have representation that way, but there's really no real healthy representation, um, even on the Navajo Nation, which is one of the issues I dealt with in the campaign too. And so, but the changes we need are national changes. And so that's why I ran for president in the first place. And so, yeah, the, the option for 2024 is definitely on the table. My goal for the next two years, I want to continue to create this common memory, to teach this history. I want to promote my book. I want to lecture. I want to talk. I want to, I want to lay out these ideas so that we can actually have a healthier common memory as a country. I want to continue to engage politically, right? One of the things we started in our campaign was we called it my second cup of coffee. 
where during the campaign we did it every day. I'd sit down and around 10 or 11 in the morning Eastern time, I'd have my second cup of coffee and I'd talk about the issues of the day we we're going to be addressing as a campaign. Since the campaign, we've moved it onto my, my personal social media, onto my YouTube channel and my Facebook page, my Instagram account, all under Wireless Hogan. And uh, I still, maybe two or three times a week, I still do my second cup of coffee and address political and social justice issues that need to be talked about. I'm doing everything I can to promote my book. Uh, you know, we actually have our, our website, my website, wirelesshogan.com. People can order signed copies of the book there. Um, they can also buy it from almost any bookstore in the country because it's got a starred review from Publishers Weekly. It's in a lot of libraries. We have an audio version of the book as well as an ebook version of it. And so there's a lot of ways people can get it. And so we're doing everything we can to, to get that history out there to help our people engage with it better. And then we're thinking about starting this pack. So if we can create this common memory, continue to press these issues forward, if we can continue to raise this awareness and, and build on the momentum we built within the campaign, in two years, we're gonna sit down and make a decision about, okay, what, where, where do we go after this? Right now, I'm thinking immediately, what do we do for the next two years? In a year and a half, we'll sit down and make a very intentional decision. Okay, is it gonna be beneficial to run again in 2024? What will that look like? How will we, what can we learn from the past time? What do we need to do different if we're gonna change things? Um, but definitely, we definitely saw some momentum being born in this last campaign. And we are working very hard and trying to be as strategic as possible so we don't lose that momentum so that we can actually make the changes we set out to make in the first place. Well, I am certainly looking forward to what you'll be doing in the future. I've, I've read your book. It challenged me in a lot of ways. And I'm still thinking about some of the things uh, f from the book. And hopefully, some other people will pick up the book as well, and, and they'll be challenged in, in, their, in their thinking, and, and I think also in, the, in their faith. It's very difficult for someone who's been part of the majority, you know, white evangelicals have pretty much kind of set the norm for what Christianity is in the United States for a very long time. And when you're part of that, you hear all the positive things about it. When you start looking into the history of how Christianity came over here, what people did in the name of Christ over here, most people tend to brush over it and say, well, yeah, that was bad, but that, that's all in the past. But they don't think about how it influences the church today. And so yeah. that's where that has helped me, is looking back at the past and saying, okay, how has that influenced my faith? How has that influenced what I believe about the church. It was very eye-opening and very challenging, so so I, I certainly thank you for that. Once again, if you can let everyone know where they can where they can get in touch with you, uh, if, if they want to be kind of part of this and, and get a book or, or follow you on social media. Yeah, I actually want to, I want to read something I wrote for your audience. Sure. Um, I wrote this, uh, I don't have it for your audience, but I wrote this for, I do some work with the the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship at Calvin College. And about two and a half years ago, they asked me, this was in the middle of the, the immigration crisis our country was in. And they asked me to write something about my prophetic message that also um, was in the form of a proverb. And I want to leave your audience with what I wrote for them two and a half years ago. 
And then I, I would encourage people, you, the best way to find me is I'm on social media. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on uh, TikTok. I'm mostly under Wireless Hogan. That's my username I've been using for almost 15, 10, 15 years now. So you can find me at Wireless Hogan, W-I-R-E-L-E-S-S-H-O-G-A-N. You can go to my website, which is wirelesshogan.com. And you can get links to all my social media. You can also order the, the copy of my book there, a signed copy of my book. And I also have a YouTube channel under Wireless Hogan where I put my second cup of coffees and do my live streams and everything else. And so I encourage people to engage with me online, to reach out to me. And I do my best to stay as active as I can on those social media platforms. But I want to read this, this um, piece I wrote to you. And this is actually on my website as well. It's called From Prophecy to Proverb. And I wrote this back in the summer of 2018. Wise is the church that refuses to buy into the trappings of partisan politics. Remember, my brothers and sisters, Jesus did not come to create a Christian empire. He came to make disciples. He came to offer his body as a living sacrifice. He came to plant a church. When the church merely lobbies one political leader or protests the other, when for the sake of argument or political gain, the body of Christ turns a blind eye to one sin and magnifies another, we are not representing the headship of our body, who is Christ. As vile, repulsive, and urgent is the Trump administration's separation of families at our border, it's not the first time. Indian removal, the slave trade, boarding schools, lynchings, Japanese internment camps, mass incarceration, even the deportation numbers of the Obama administration. The list of ways the United States government has worked to destroy the family structure of people of color throughout our history is as long as it is depressing. So let's stop pretending that President Trump is a God-ordained savior or the ultimate demise of our union. The same with President Obama. What our nation needs is not for Democrats to be better Democrats, nor do we need Republicans to simply be better Republicans. We don't even need our nation to be more Christian. My brothers and sisters, the United States of America is not never has been, nor will it ever be Christian. Jesus did not come to create a Christian empire. He came to make disciples. He came to offer his body as a living sacrifice. He came to plant a church. And wise is the church that refuses to buy into the trappings of partisan politics. I agree with Kenneth Kunda, the former president of Zambia, who said, what a nation needs more than anything else is not a Christian ruler in the palace, but a Christian prophet with an earshot. Thank you once again, Mark, and I truly, truly appreciate that your it, it truly is it's a you're, you're a prophetic voice, and I think it's a, a word that people need to hear today. So thank you, thank you again for coming on the podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great to talk. I look forward to being in touch. So ahiahat hakonet, and let's walk in beauty and learn how to walk in beauty together. Once again, I'd like to thank Mark Charles for agreeing to be interviewed. You can check out links to his website and social media, as well as a lot of the videos that he mentioned over at strugglingforpurpose.com slash Mark Charles. And as always, if you want to support this podcast, I would really appreciate your support over at strugglingforpurpose.com slash buymeacoffee. I encourage you to buy Mark's book and learn about the doctrine of discovery and to be challenged in what you believe about the United States and Western Christianity. I think it it was eye-opening to me, 
and I think it will be eye-opening to you as well. So if you have to choose between buying Mark's book and supporting me, please buy Mark's book. Once again, my name is John Wilkerson. Thanks again to Mark, and thank you for listening and sticking me in your ears.